Our guest today is Ege Kavalali. He is a professor of pharmacology and acting chair of the Department of Pharmacology at Vanderbilt University and is also the William Stokes Chair in Experimental Therapeutics. His research focuses on understanding the fundamentals of how synaptic communication occurs between neurons under healthy circumstances and understanding how abnormalities in this process leads to psychiatric, neurological, and neurodevelopmental disorders. What do you think is the most beautiful aspect about the brain? It is the most complex um, machine that's ever, you know, it's even in the, if you think about from an engineering perspective, it is a remarkable machine that allows us um, to think, to create, to, uh, it's, it's, it's remarkable for humans, but also even in the, in the animal kingdom. So, um, so how it works is, is fascinating. And I think we are, I think we're making progress to understand how the brain works, but uh, we still have a lot to uh, uncover. And I think there will be more and more surprises in um, how we can uh, uh, elucidate the, the brain function, how it works. And also maybe we can actually think about uh, doing some engineering down the road to actually um, to implement, which is also another ongoing effort to uh, to build brains uh, that uh, will at least uh, we can outsource some of our uh, abilities. Maybe I mean that's uh, of course down the road. Mm, right, and you know broadly speaking, I think there are like two main approaches to trying to understand how the brain works. So one is reductionism, where you try to break everything down into tiny parts and try to understand each of the parts in order to build a picture of the whole. And another is more of like the study of emergence, where you study how these component parts interact with each other to produce um, complex phenomena. So something like how the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. So do you favor a particular approach? So um, in my research, um, since we are trying to understand mechanisms of how mostly um, very in a very reduced sense, not the brains, even not the neurons, we're trying to understand how synapses work. So we inevitably prefer reductionist approaches. Now, I, this doesn't mean that, you know, I think both types of approaches are important. And I think one of the challenges is to actually unite in, in a way that as we learn more about the, the nanomechanisms, what's happening at the level of molecules and atoms within a synapse, we need to then connect, reconnect that information back into how a neuron functions, how a circuit functions, um, or how um, you know, the brain functions. So I don't think these are mutually exclusive, but on the other hand, I think um, when you are doing research uh, inevitably, you end up picking and choosing which approach that you rather take. Mm. Right. So maybe let's get into neurotransmitter release and neurotransmission. So just to put things into perspective, could you maybe take us on a brief historical journey on how neuroscientists have uncovered the principles underlying how neurons communicate? Yeah, that is a, that, there is a long history to that. And there's a lot of uh, really... Um, accomplished investigators over a hundred years as uh, uh, this starts with some, um, you know, there's several, um, how to say, parallel developments happen. This would actually take pretty much a whole 
discussion by itself. So there are, you know, more anatomical approaches. I think Ramon y Cajal is the, 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 um, the pioneer, but although there are several others at the same time who um, uh, propose that uh, neurons are actually um, associated with these junctions that are, they are not, you know, physically connected in a sense that they are not, you know, working like the heart, for instance, like they are not, uh, uh, they are side, you know, the neurons, the cells are not contiguous with each other, which some of, some people actually, you know, favored that. I think one of the uh, critical opponents of Cajal here was Camilio Golgi, and who actually found the technique that Cajal used. Um, so, um, so that's basically the more anatomical approach. But then there's also a very strong pharmacological approach of uh, release of chemical substances, and their their workings as targeting muscle and uh, you know secretory organs, and uh, so that approach also brought in and somehow um, advent of intracellular electrophysiology unified the two. So that therefore, you know, work of um, Bernard Cutts stands out where he could actually formulate how synaptic transmission uh, may be occurring chemically, but at the same time can occur extremely fast and uh, can actually exert its actions. So I, you know, I think that's, those are like the key um, developments um, that led to our, at least uh, today, the general perspective that we have on how chemical transmission occurs. Mm, right. And so what is the neurotransmitter and what is a synapse? So, um, so neurons are connected uh, by the synaptic junctions. These are like micrometer uh, uh, subcellular structures. Uh, it's a neuron can send out thousands of them and receives thousands of them. Synapses don't necessarily only form on neurons, they can form on muscle, like neuromuscular junction, or they can form on, um, you know, several gland tissues. So um, uh, they are uh, specialized, they're quite small, as I said, a micrometer size of a bacterium, but they have these uh, structures called synaptic vesicles. These are quite distinct organelles at the, you know, approximately 40 nanometer in diameter and they store these neurotransmitter substances. So they, there are many substances that have been identified to be neurotransmitters, acetylcholine, you know, glutamate, GABA, glycine, dopamine, serotonin, on and on. So there's actually a long list of them. And um, they are released from these synaptic terminals. Uh, typically a synaptic junction, a fast synaptic junction is a very narrow gap space, like 10 to 15 nanometers between this presynaptic terminal and its target. Uh, and there the neurotransmitter released and uh, is uh, then diffuses across this very narrow cleft and uh, binds to receptors on the other side and activates, either opens up ion channels or activates um, uh, more metabotropic receptors. And that's how the signaling occurs. Despite it being uh, um, chemical in essence, uh, it's actually a quite a rapid process. I think that was one of the biggest challenges and one of the original disagreements between, you know, is, um, you know, neurotransmission chemical or electrical, and then the people who propose it to be electrical, they, um, their argument was it's very hard to envision how something chemical can occur that fast, but um, it definitely can. And there's now, now I think we understand how that might be. Right, and why is the synapse so important in terms of neurotransmission? So is it just a bridge or is it like, does it also well, from computations? 
Yeah, that's the thing. Uh, that's the interesting part of it. You know, there are a lot of excitable tissues. Brain is not unique. I mean, heart is excitable. Skeletal muscle is excitable. You know, smooth muscle. The muscle can fire action potentials, but um, like neurons. Um, but on the other hand, I think what makes neurons special is that they form these uh, chemical connections, and these are very highly modulatable, regulatable connections. They um, their transmission rate is very dynamic. You can modulate the amplitude of the, the, the transmission. You can modulate its frequency. Uh, you can, they clearly store information. You can, um, you know, long-term actually change their synaptic strength. You can downregulate it, upregulate it. They're incredibly plastic uh, structures. And uh, so that actually makes the brain incredibly complex because you have a single neuron can send out thousands of these and receives thousands of these, and each one can show an independent form of plasticity. Uh, and these plasticities can be short-term in the milliseconds to seconds, can be really long-term, last to hours, and presumably also last over our lifetime. Okay, and previously you described how the action potential gives rise to neurotransmitter release at the presynaptic terminal, which then leads to the uh, propagation of the signal postsynaptically. So that's what we call classical evoked uh, neurotransmission. Is that the only form of neurotransmitter release? No. Um, uh, so the, the, and the action potential, which is the nerve impulse, um, that neurotransmission is um, you know, quite robust. That's the one that I, when I refer to fast neurotransmission, that's what happens. And that happens, now we understand it quite well, actually, that the calcium influx through voltage-gated calcium channels at the presynaptic terminal where these vesicles are, that's the key. And that calcium then acts on a protein machinery that drives fusion of these vesicles with the plasma membrane that results in release of neurotransmitters. But this is actually an extremely fast event, happens in you know, at most in hundreds of microseconds. So it's almost uh, requires a more of an intramolecular, you know, change rather than a you know long signaling cascade or any kind of long distance physical movement. So this happens incredibly fast. So that's what makes it you know quite unique. Now on the other hand, neurotransmitters can be released spontaneously. These vesicles fuse even in the absence of nerve impulses, and um, and also. Uh, while neurotransmitter release, evoke release can happen fast, there are also forms of release that actually happen with a delay. So the action potential or a, 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 a burst of action potentials arrive, but the neurotransmitters basically fusion occurs, you know, trickling out over, you know, seconds after this arrival. So that's called asynchronous release. Mm. So what we described as this really fast release, it's called synchronous release. So it's, these are these the three general forms, spontaneous release that doesn't necessarily require, you know, and that doesn't require action potentials can occur with a lower probability, asynchronous release and fast synchronous release. Hmm. Right, and why, why does the brain need so many different forms of neurotransmitter release? So, you know, do these forms of neurotransmitter release differ because of different neurotransmitters or is it for serving different computational roles? Yeah, so that's exactly the question that we've been uh, trying to address uh, in my lab and several other labs are interested in this. Um, so asynchronous release is uh, actually there are some synaptic like in the hypothalamus and all the same in the cortex, some inhibitory interneurons that actually release GABA. 
they actually seem to prefer um, asynchronous release, where timing is not that essential, but you actually would like to exert a more of a broad inhibition. Mm. That's one way. And then there are cases where asynchronous release might be important for, you know, reverberatory activity, where you can basically get oscillations. Uh, and that's, let's say, that's something that we and others have been trying to figure out what asynchronous release might be good for, but it is clearly a physiological phenomenon. Now, on the other hand, there are cases where, where synapses degenerate or synapses basically um, have, there are some mutations, uh, certain disorders. It is likely that this asynchronous release may actually come about as a pathological process as well, because like in a synapse that's supposed to keep the timing, that tight coupling and timing, if you start getting asynchronous release, that will definitely mess up this information processing and the timing. So that's one part. Spontaneous release is also an enigma. So it was initially actually referred to, I referred to Bernard Cutts, and uh, he's the one, his lab uh, uh, observed spontaneous release early on. This is back in late 1940s, and they published uh, classical papers in 1950s in the neuromuscular junction. And it was a... Uh, um, a surprise, but it also helped them to formulate this, what we call today, the quantal hypothesis. It basically comes down to that synaptic, this chemical transmission occurs by a fusion of quanta, which we know today that that refers to synaptic vesicles, fusion of synaptic vesicles with the plasma membrane. So, um, so spontaneous release therefore is sparse in usually you can detect, um, you know, release of single synaptic vesicles. And that it seems to infer some, um, you know, computational power, which, you know, that's, um, um, that's something that we've been working on. It seems to have several functions. Uh, one of them is um, there's this, um, the notion of synaptic homeostasis. The synaptic weights need to be kept in a certain dynamic range for efficient coding. That, you know, it's just kind of a very actually intuitive process that, you know, if you want to decrease synaptic strength or increase or decrease, you actually need a certain dynamic range so you can actually have that level of plasticity. And there's homeostatic plasticities maintain that dynamic range. And so you pretend like you prevent like saturation of the synaptic. Exactly. Uh, saturation at, at both, you know, upper and lower, you know, bounds. You, um, you, there are processes and homeostatic synaptic plasticity, key one that prevents that from happening. And spontaneous release is almost like a, appears to be a gatekeeper uh, that maintains that uh, synaptic dynamic range. Mm -hmm. Now, um, that seems to happen through spontaneous release regulating protein translation uh, in uh, neuronal dendrites. On the other hand, uh, our group and others have you know, found out that, you know, there's transcription, uh, uh, um, gene transcription in neurons is also can be regulated by spontaneous release. And, uh, and we've also found out that there are mutations, um, some disease mutations that actually seem to uh, dysregulate spontaneous release and gives rise to for certain forms of epilepsies. So there's uh, both physiological and pathological um, regulation and dysregulation of spontaneous release seems to occur. So it is, a, um, it is, you know, it's initially thought to be just noise or accident of nature or accident of design. But today, uh, I think we are more and more getting convinced that it's actually serves its own signaling function. Right. So it's not just a random process. 
Well, it is in essence, it's a quasi-random process because it is regulated. You know, it, it is responsive to um, calcium levels in the presynaptic terminal. It responds to you know neuromodulators. It responds to signal transduction cascades. So it's not entirely random. I mean, initially it was described as a Poisson process, but now there's increasing evidence that in several instances it deviates from a you know the classical Poisson process. Mm -hmm. Right, and if we go into the function of spontaneous release a bit more, so you spoke about synaptic homeostasis, but could could you talk more about what is the link between this spontaneous release process and synaptic homeostasis? Because it doesn't seem very intuitive. Yeah, so um, uh, so what seems to happen is that there is this tonic uh, spontaneous release events coming in, and uh, they um, result in these uh, minute calcium signals. But there are sensors at the synapse, and that's something that we are actually working on to understand better. Uh, there are uh, calcium calmodulin dependent kinases, for instance, not the classical one that you're thinking, you know, one may think about this with chem kinase too, but there's, for instance, chem kinase 3. It's also called uh, EEF2 kinase. It is a high affinity calcium calmodulin kinase. So even low calcium signals can actually activate it. And there are other chem kinases and other signaling factors that also kind of respond to this low level calcium. So that um, in one pathway, that EF2 kinase pathway, for instance, that we worked extensively on, appears to um, phosphorylate EF2, which is an elongation factor uh, for you know, regulating dendritic uh, protein synthesis. And uh, this uh, tonic uh, calcium signal, in a way, deactivates this pathway. Now, if you suppress this, if you actually inhibit or decrease that spontaneous release-driven tonic signal, then you get um, you uh, disinhibit protein translation in dendrites. So um, so you need to think about this in reverse. Uh, so uh, and that seems to be the key signal, for instance, that we you know worked on. Um, one was one of the open questions in the field was how come an NMDA receptor blocker may work as a rapidly acting antidepressant. So that's actually one of the insights into from our work. You know that. Um, suggested that it is indeed that tonic signal that you suppress that results in um, you know upregulation of protein translation and uh, increase in factors such as BDNF brain brain derived neurotrophic factor that you know then in turn gives rise to sub downstream plasticity events I mean eventual antidepressant action so that's that tonic signal is critical you know if the, I think a great analogy of this is comes from the retina. If, if you're familiar in the retina, uh, the photoreceptors are actually tonically releasing neurotransmitter and the light detection occurs actually via suppression of that signal. So um, in many ways, um, this um, spontaneous release driven signaling occurs similarly. Um, uh, there's another pathway that um, you know uh, we work on now, but it was uh, initially a work of uh, other labs that retinoic acid uh, uh, synthesis seems to be also in dendrites regulated by a similar pathway. So um, uh, yeah, so there is these, uh, I mean, there's electrical effects of spontaneous release. Don't, don't take me wrong. I mean, that's, that, that's in a way more expected. It's a lower frequency, but if you increase propensity of spontaneous release, you can definitely alter electrical properties. But you know, what is more surprising is this biochemical signaling that you can uh, regulate. 
by regulating spontaneous release. Mm. Right. So the idea there is that um, the suppression of the tonic spontaneous release is what uh, drives uh, synaptic homeostasis. Well, it's it's well, it's, it's homeostatic plasticity is driven by that. Synaptic homeostasis is you know it's basically the stasis, right? It's it's maintained by spontaneous release. But if you uh, disrupt spontaneous release, impair it, increase it, or decrease it, then you can regulate the plasticity. Right, right, right. Okay, and um, so the this this sensor, this calcium sensor on the postsynaptic neuron is it's able to differentiate between the calcium coming from a spontaneous release process and a and a fast synchronous release process. Yeah, so that's uh, that's that's actually um, uh, we have a study where we could um, because we've spent a lot of time working on the presynaptic mechanism regulating spontaneous release, especially mechanisms that uh, selectively regulate spontaneous release, and we identified some synaptic vesicle proteins. These are snares. These are not the canonical snares that we typically think about when we think about like synchronous release or evoke release. Um, so there are other snares that seems to be more involved in spontaneous release. So when we manipulate those, what we could show that even in the presence of activity, this pathway is functional. So that is a surprise. So that suggests some level of nanosegregation. Not only, you know, there could be two ways that can happen, but probably not mutually exclusive. One way is that, you know, you have some sort of what is called in electrical engineering, that's my original background, time division multiplexing. You have an evoke signal in between, you have the spontaneous signal, and then you have another evoke signal. That's easier to envision, right? So you see they are not it's happening at the same time. So they can, they can, you can get these two forms of regulation. You can divide the time between them. That probably happens, but also even during strong activity, it seems like um, you can actually get the spontaneous signaling occurring. I think if there is, yeah, I think it's going to depend on activity levels. If the activity rises extremely high, then you probably will lose the segregation. And actually, we have shown that. Uh, but in certain, you know, activity levels, you can probably distinguish between these two forms of release, um, and that will, to some extent, require some level of segregation also within the synapse. And that's something uh, we're trying to understand how that non-organization occurs. I mean, you may be familiar that there is increasing evidence that even a single synapse seems to have this uh, subcellular this nanostructure. I mean, a single active zone, the single synapse, when we talk about, I said, a micrometer structure, but the release side is almost like 200 nanometers or so. But even within that structure, there seems to be this nano-organization where certain regions are privileged for evoke release, and then certain other regions might actually be uh, performing more spontaneous release, and then some segregation also between synchronous evoke release versus asynchronous release. And this is ongoing research. We are working on it, others as well. And we're trying to understand that, but it's clearly even a single synapse is not just homogeneous structure. So therefore, what I'm trying to get at is that the answer to your question is that, so time difference, you know, um, the division of time between different forms of release may be one way you can explain how this might be occurring, but the in parallel, not necessarily mutually exclusive way that you may also have some spatial segregation. 
Right. So, so all of these neurotransmitter types of neurotransmitter release, it's all very highly regulated. Yes, that's, that's, that's for sure. No question about that. Mm -hmm. And um, you mentioned spontaneous release in the function of gene transcription. Um, so what sorts of genes are we talking about here? So uh, that's actually a recent study um, we've, our group has published where we found is that um, there's always been a puzzle, can spontaneous events, I mean, there is actually, I think, strong evidence that they can regulate protein translation, which the, the mechanism I just mentioned to you, to this EF2 pathway, and probably also by retinoic acid signaling. So, uh, but can they regulate transcription? And what we have found is that uh, there is, you know, excitatory spontaneous release with glutamatergic. There's also inhibitory spontaneous release. It's GABAergic. Now, if you actually manipulate GABAergic spontaneous release, what seems to happen is that excitatory spontaneous release, glutamatergic release, can actually trigger calcium signals much more strongly, which in turn also reach to the soma and uh, impact gene transcription. And we actually did some uh, RNA-seq analysis, um, you know, RNA sequencing analysis. And what we found is like very few number of genes are targeted this way. One is BDNF, uh, which was a surprise. Uh, the other is, for instance, MPAS4. And now interesting thing is that these genes are typically quite thought to be like immediate early genes that respond to activity. But we have shown is that they are um, transcribed even in the absence of activity by just manipulating the balance of inhibitory and excitatory spontaneous transmission. Mm. Right. And there are a few of them. I mean, the RNA-seq analysis typically leads to like a long list of genes here. We actually identified, I think it's just only nine or so. Mm, that's it's very selective. That's really interesting. Um, and yeah, you, you mentioned this tonic spontaneous release signals. So does spontaneous release happen all the time in every synapse? So um, uh, it, several systems, this also phylogenetically, I mean, it's, um, you know, in the, initially it was described actually in the frog neurovascular junction. We know that it happens in, um, you know, uh, flies in drosophila and uh, definitely in C. elegans. Uh, which is interesting, actually, C. elegance doesn't even have, you know, sodium action potentials. So that's actually telling several of the, you know, the movements, for instance, C. elegance movement, as far as I know, is actually driven in a process similar to spontaneous release. Um, and uh, mammalian synapses across the brain, wherever it's been looked, it's been found. Now, some cases it's very low, some cases it could be very high, and uh, the rate of release. Um, so um, I think uh, what its function might be will probably depend on different contexts and uh, in, in different signaling systems. Um, so uh, I think that's something for us and others to figure out along the way. I mean, wherever it's been studied, it's been observed. Um, now, when we look at though, in our um, uh, efforts, and actually some or other some other labs, like in work, people working on drosophila neuromuscular junction, have seen the same too. Which is what is surprising is if you look at a lot of synapses simultaneously, like you know hundreds of synapses using some imaging methods that you can monitor spontaneous release. Either you look at you know fusion events, or you look at postsynaptic detection by calcium signals 
for instance, we have done that and others have done that. What you see is that there are some synapses are privileged in spontaneous release. They don't actually release much, you know, they don't really release much in response to action potentials. And also there's vice versa, where there are synapses that have, you know, very strong spontaneous evoke release responses that don't have any spontaneous events coming. It is, you know, the two forms of release to a large extent to our experience when we actually have the tools to look at them at the single synapse level are extremely uncorrelated. Uh, which goes against some original assumptions in the field that people expected that these two forms of release should be correlated. They're originating from the same source. They are responding to the similar calcium signals and they are in a way should be correlated. But wherever we look at this, where multiple methods, we do not detect correlation. Mm. And so the idea there is that the mechanisms underlying the regulation of spontaneous neurotransmitters spontaneous neurotransmission and synchronous neurotransmission is different? Yes. So um, I think that's um, uh, becoming more and more evident. And there are many reasons for that. Um, so one couple of them I alluded to. First of all, of course, you have to think about, you know, spontaneous release occurs spontaneously. It doesn't really require action potentials. And the other one is evidence in response to an action potential. I mean, there is that, let's say, by definition, of course, they are different. But on the other hand, and aside from that, what people have envisioned early on is that there is this a set of vesicles that are ready to go. It's almost like a sprinters in a race. And now some of them misfire, just fuse spontaneously, randomly as an error. Now, if that is the case, then what happens is uh, that the number of, you know, these fusion, the rate of these fusion events should be proportional to the number of vesicles that are available for release. You know, in this, in our jargon, we call this readily releasable pool vesicles. So the more vesicles are ready to, to release, and then you will should be able to detect more uh, misfirings that these, you know, errors. That's not the case. So um, there's really very little correlation. I mean, there's, so the, clearly both forms of release respond to calcium. So that's that's no question, but in a very different way. And uh, so that's, you know, um, one initial argument that, um, that you would say, well, I mean, these two things uh, don't seem to actually correlate, especially if you look at them at the single synapse level. I mean, that's, I think, in a way, more importantly, because they both respond to calcium. You could say that, you know, increased calcium, you basically can regulate both forms of release. But uh, when you look at a single synapse level, you don't see that, you know, tight correlation. Now, um, what we have proposed early on is that probably the vesicles that are giving rise to these two forms of release are distinct. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's it's kind of a complicated set of experiments um, that's, you know, um, uh, I can, I'm happy to explain. But um, so, but now we have more molecular understanding of how that might be. That I just mentioned to you, there are these fusion molecules, snares that are important on the synaptic vesicle, like synaptobrev in VAMP2 is critical for evoked fusion and also some extent spontaneous fusion. But even if you knock out this key molecule, you still get spontaneous fusion. This is the same in the fly. This is the same in mammals. We actually you know, worked on this extensively. So there are other snares that are important, but those snares don't necessarily good for evoked release. That's one way we can think about it. The other way, the other uh, function is, and the other possibility, there are actually mechanisms that we know for instance, calcium sensor for um, evoked release is synaptotagmin. 
Now, synaptotagmin promotes evoked release, but it also suppresses spontaneous release. And there are other set of molecules called complexins that, it, and they, that uh, interact with the snare complex that regulate fusion. And those uh, molecules tend to suppress spontaneous release, whereas promote synchronous release. So, um, so what I'm trying to get at is that there's a layers of mechanisms that uh, seem to either independently regulate spontaneous and evoked release, or and or they promote one form of release and suppress the other. So that I think when you kind of put them all together, that gives rise to this observation that these are quite distinct independent forms of transmission. Um, there's another layer, which is the active zone molecules. This is what makes the past synapse. Synapse, there's this very dense proteinaceous matrix at the presynaptic terminal. Those molecules also seem to have differential effects on how they impact spontaneous versus evoked release. So, and on top of this, which I, another thing I mentioned, there is this nanosegregation that's emerging. I mean, we have shown early on that the receptors that are activated in response to far one form of release is not, they're not the same as activated as, uh, in response to the other form. Although there are same types of receptors like AMPA or NMDA receptors, you block one, you don't block the other and vice versa. We, we have done some those types of experiments. So that I think is a long answer to your question. There are many layers where to, that really segregate these forms of transmission. Right, and like, um... Are there very similar types of proteins for each, um, uh, the mechanism of the regulation of each of these processes that are maybe different in terms of biophysical properties and that's how we get differential regulation? Yeah, that's, that's exactly what I'm getting in. Uh, I mean, there even, even for instance, is the, the, the same molecule. Let's say I, you know, another molecule, I'm sorry to throw out all these molecule names, but like SNAP25, this is a snare molecule on the plasma membrane. It's the target for Botox, okay? It's actually, that's what you cleave that, you know, you actually, there are certain, you know, clostridial toxins cleave these snares and tetanus toxin, for instance, cleaves synaptobrevin on the vesicle side. So SNAP25 is critical, but you can actually identify, we actually worked on this, you can identify mutations on SNAP25 that selectively regulate spontaneous release and actually do not touch evoked release. So even the same molecule, important for both forms of release, has distinct functions regulating the either form of release. Does it make sense what I'm trying to say? Hmm. So there are distinct molecules, but also even the same molecule can actually serve a dual function when it comes to distinct forms of release. What determines whether that same molecule regulates either process? Well, that's the, that, you know, we would love to understand. I mean, there has been some experiments done in on synaptotagmin. That's another molecule I mentioned that this function suppresses one form of release and promotes the other. You can actually make mutations that actually segregates these functions that you can make a synaptotagmin that you know suppresses spontaneous release and not touch evoked release vice versa so it's probably a conformational changes or as i mentioned you know if there is this nano organization in the synapse which we're still you know trying to figure out exact you know how that's structured um, that location of this molecule in the particular part of the active zone versus another 
may confer interactions with distinct partners that may stabilize one conformation versus another. It does that, I mean, that's, yeah. I'm totally speculating here, but that's probably how that can happen. It depends on probably where you are. Right. And when you first discovered that, you know, spontaneous neurotransmission uses different mechanisms and different vesicles compared to synchronous transmission, was there a lot of resistance to that idea? Yes, there was. Uh, I mean, that's kind of inevitable. Um, you know, it's when you have, um, let's say, um, uh, um, how to say a very provocative proposal, um, then, you know, you need to have really strong evidence. And uh, so, um, yeah, that was, uh, I, I think it's, I think that was, you know, there was a warranted, very heated debate and discussion. It's still ongoing in many ways. I mean, clearly, as I'm trying to explain to you, that there are many questions that we don't know. But on the other hand, I think that initial resistance uh, to that idea, that notion, um, kind of uh, now turned into, okay, what's going on? How can we figure out what's going on type uh, approach, at least overall? That's, that's my sense. Uh, but there's always like that, and that's how science works. So I'm not, you know, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing as long as it's, uh, uh, you know, if um, it happens in a civil manner and people listen to each other and try to think of, you know, others' experiments. I mean, we were primarily guided by our data. And um, so if you look at some of the earlier publications, you know, I was quite... Um, um, well subscribed to the notion that these two things are just manifestation of a singular process, but um, more and more that from the data we obtained that uh, seemed untenable, then, you know, we've tried to figure it out. Did you ever initially, did you ever like question yourself or were you always confident in your findings? No, no. I mean, it's, you know, on one hand, um, you know, I was, uh, uh, quite confident that we observed what we observed. We've done the experiment. This is what we observed. I mean, is it possible that we have made errors? You know, it turned out not the case, but it could have been. You know, we all make mistakes. And um, it, on the other hand, there is a lot of other evidence accumulated that supports those initial observations, which is, I think, one of the key things is that you don't get stick to stick to a singular experiment, single observation. You kind of expand and try to, for instance, we initially showed that there are distinct, we suggested that. I mean, we didn't really show it that strongly. I think the future evidence kind of supported that conclusion better, but especially the molecular evidence. But initial um, proposal was presynaptic. And then the postsynaptic counterpart to this, where showing that maybe there are distinct receptor populations are just, it came totally unexpectedly. And um, it was actually quite surprising. I mean, those are two different things and uh, they seem to match very nicely, but on the other hand, it wasn't necessarily so. So um, yeah, I think it's, it's much, I think it's important to take the criticism at heart. And, and you know, it's clearly, you know, there's, you know, we are vested in our science. We can be quite, you know, emotional about it, but I think it's important to put that aside and follow through and uh, try to figure out. And uh, um, I mean, there's many, many examples in history of science. And I think that what is called this essential tension is actually important to really uh, um, uh, consolidate novel findings and to really make them you know, accessible and validated and reproducible. I think that's important.
So experimentally, how do you actually study spontaneous neurotransmission in the lab? Yeah, so um, I think the predominant way it's been studied is electrophysiologically. You need some sort of an intracellular recording technique. Original work by Cuts used intracellular electrodes, sharp electrodes in the muscle, and that's again used in multiple other preparations to study it. Um, then patch clamp technique that came about back in you know, late 80s was quite instrumental because we started recording in all different types of central mammalian central neurons, which are small, and they don't typically like sharp electrodes because they don't like to be poked as much. They're smaller, they're not as, you know, they're kind of more vulnerable. So uh, patch clamp technique, you know, that I think was suddenly showed that like spontaneous or something like this is like, you know, like don't mean quite um, prevalent in the, in the mammalian systems. So uh, that's one thing. But then, you know, I think my entry into synaptic transmission field was kind of bolstered by um, uh, optical methods. So there are fluorescent uh, approaches that you can label single synapses. You can study, you know, genetically, you can label single synapses by tagging synaptic vesicle proteins, for instance, and then you can monitor their exoendocytosis. You can uh, tag, uh, you can also use dyes um, that are, these are organic dyes that you can label synaptic vesicles, like for instance, dyes that preferentially incorporate into lipids. Um, so you can you could do that. So these are more presynaptic ways. The postsynaptic ways you can tag receptors, uh, which is not as actually not as much done. But for instance, you can tag um, you can attach calcium sensors to postsynaptic scaffolds. That's something we have done, like GCAMP, a calcium sensor. That's of course predominantly used for you know that's only used for excitatory transmission where you get a calcium signal. You, now we have tools to, um, there are receptors, there are fluorescent uh, um, uh, receptors. These are like false receptors, if you will, um, that sense glutamate or GABA, and now there's an increasing number of them coming along, like for dopamine and others. You can use optical methods to visualize fusion events um, at the single um, um, uh, synapse level. So, um, so yeah, there are many ways, and that's great. Because, for instance, things I'm telling you about largely applies to um, glutamatergic transmission. Uh, there is some evidence that, you know, cholinergic transmission, at least in the neuromuscular junction, may follow similar rules. But, and there is emerging evidence for dopamine might actually follow similar segregation of evoked and spontaneous release. But, you know, it's just, we don't know. For instance, for GABAergic transmission has been quite an enigma that's hard to study. At the single synapse level, we don't have those great optical tools yet. If we have them, I believe we will also have a, a whole level of understanding there. And this applies to all other transmitters. I mean, serotonin, you know, um, uh, other, you know, monoamines, catecholamines. I think we will need uh, uh, a lot more tools to actually really dissect them. But yeah, there are a lot of tools emerging and there will be more to come. And so in terms of experiments, how, how do we differentiate between the different mechanisms of neurotransmission through sort of using the techniques that you described? Yes, I mean, you can. Uh, so the thing is like electrophysiologically, you can, uh, but uh, when you record from a neuron, you're recording from a lot of synapses simultaneously. And that is good and bad. I mean, that's, you know, that's great. Electrophysiology still has the best time resolution. If something is happening within hundreds of microseconds, you can see it with, a, with electrophysiology. That's a very high time resolution. 
Now, on the other hand, you don't have any spatial resolution. You don't know where things are coming from. So optical methods are great. You can see single synapses. You can look at, for definitely see spontaneous versus evoked release in single synapses. But then when you come to really fast timing issues within the order of milliseconds, then you have, you know, the, the optical methods don't have that level of resolution. I mean, they can, if you only focus a single synapse, you know, you do basically, you only record from a single, you know, there's this methods time for called or line scanning and things that you can only focus on a single synapse and record that, but you lose then the spatial, you know, advantage of recording from multiple synapses, etc. So um, yeah, there are pros and cons, but um, spontaneous and evoked release is easy to visualize and differentiate using optical methods at a single synapse level. And what, what would you say are the greatest experimental challenges in studying neurotransmission? I think uh, currently there are challenges on um, both sides of our, um, let's say, spectrum. One challenge is, as I mentioned this, we would love to understand this non-organization within the synapse. And uh, you know, there are methods now, you know, like cryo-EM tomography, that's great. You know, you can actually visualize things with a really high um, resolution, um, but it's at the end of the day, you're looking at getting a static picture. Uh, now, super resolution microscopy, it's wonderful. Uh, on the other hand, the resolution is not as good as, you know, seeing things at the, you know, with the endo electron microscopy, for instance. And it's not as easy to do it dynamically. Now, more like microscopy, you can do things dynamically. So it would be great to come up with tools. Um, and I, I think this is going to happen actually sooner than later to actually have molecular resolution um, but at the same time, having incredible, you know, nanoscale spatial resolution. So we can actually study this choreography of these molecules at the synapse, because synapse is a very dynamic structure. And, uh, you know, these vesicles are not standing there, you know, they're not, you know, they're actually moving around and there's a lot of action going on. So to be able to see these at the molecular, with molecular specificity, that's a, that's a challenge. But I think that challenge will actually be addressed more and more. I mean, now we can get a dynamic picture using electrophysiology, maybe live imaging, and then get a static picture from cryo-EM tomography or super resolution imaging and try to kind of put them together. That's actually not that bad, but I think we, it would be great if we could do all of these at the same time. And the other challenge is, of course, comes to the level of, so we are uh, uncovering uh, an, an immense complexity at the level of a single synapse and how much computation it can accomplish. Now, the question is, what does this mean at the level of the organism? Now, we can you know, do this in a way that we can manipulate the synapse molecularly and then check what happens to behavior. In a way, we and others have, you know, do these types of approaches. What would be also great, visualize this synaptic function, the way we can in more reduced reductionist preparations, do it in an intact brain, in a, you know, behaving animal and preferably in a mammal. So that is a challenge. So a lot of systems neuroscience is now focused on, you know, looking at using calcium signals as a proxy for activity, depending on action potentials. I think they're definitely important and great, but as we just discussed in the beginning of our uh, discussion, computations happen at the level of synapses. 
So by the time you visualize action potentials, in a way, most of the computations I've already done. So if you want to see that how that computation is accomplished, you need to visualize synapses at the same time activity patterns. And I think that that methods are those methods are just yet to be um, developed. I mean, in terms of scientific curiosity, this is such an important thing, understanding how all these different forms of neurotransmitter release works. And I mean, it's just so beautiful how within a synapse, all of these uh, sophisticated processes are occurring under tight regulation in such an efficient, adaptive way, completely on its own. Um, but in terms of clinically as well, to what extent do you think that understanding these mechanisms of neurotransmission will allow us to understand disease and to develop novel therapeutics for disease? So I think that's where uh, I think the biggest, um, let's say, reward is at the end. So um, as uh, you may know, um, like psychiatric diseases, uh, we are really poor in understanding mechanisms. Why? What, what is going wrong in, a, in the case of schizophrenia or depression? I mean, we have you know, increasingly better ways for diagnosis. We have actually okay treatments, um, like what I talked about. You know, we got excited and we're working on understanding how these rapidly acting antidepressants work. But there are others, you know, there are classical antidepressants. I mean, they're not ideal. There's a lot left to be desired, but there are, you know, okay treatments. So that's one way that, you know, there's clearly something going wrong with synapses and synaptic connections. And what is that? We will need to just dissect out. But some of these uh, current approaches may not be sufficient. We just need to figure out more about the biology of the synapse, I think, to really put things in context. Now, the same is for neurodegenerative disorders. There, in a way, we have better understanding of the biology, but we really don't have good treatments. I mean, it's devastating. And uh, there also, I think, synapses, how they're maintained, how they degenerate, how they signal will be critical to dissect out so we can actually target the synapse. I mean, a lot of neurotherapeutics today target G-protein coupled receptors in one form or another. Can we actually target, for instance, the synaptic release machinery that I mentioned? You know, can we? I mean, we can in a way when we use Botox. Um, that's what we do, you know, for you know cosmetic purposes or actually also other clinical purposes. But can we come up with other ways to target the synapse and this really dissociate these signal distinct forms of release? And you, for instance, if you can target maybe spontaneous release, then you don't have to touch this evoked, you know synchronous form of release that's important for you know information transfer and processing so you may actually modulate this more homeostatic signaling to basically uh, change the the set point of a synapse uh, applying neurotherapeutics and not necessarily altering the information on information processing so hopefully we will be able to use this our increasing knowledge of the the synaptic computation synaptic structure and function to target better therapeutics. I mean, that's the ultimate goal. And in these um, diseases like psychiatric disorders and neurodegenerative diseases, um, is it a defect in the neurotransmission that causes these disease or does the disease cause the, the, the changes in neurotransmitter release? I think it goes both ways, mm. uh, that it goes both ways. It doesn't have to be neurotrans, I mean, so, so um, there are diseases, I mean, for instance, another disease that I've worked on in collaboration is Rett syndrome, which is, a, you know, it's this mutations in a 
transcription regulator called MECP2, um, also MECP2, it's the same, same sometimes pronounced differently, is a methyl CPG binding protein. It's in the nucleus, but clearly its mutations gives rise to synaptic defects. So what I'm trying to get at is that whatever goes wrong in a neuron, uh, even if it's in the nucleus, in something, you know, apparently unrelated to the synapse, it still impacts the synapse in one form or another. And so therefore it's, it's I think it's, it's quite um, reasonable to think about targeting the synapse in many ways. In a way we already do. I mean, there are a lot of, you know, there are anti-epileptics, you know, we're targeting the synaptic, synaptic transmission or, you know, neuronal activity or, you know, many other ways. We just need to increase our arsenal. That's I think the, we do diverse targets and diverse therapeutics mm. to treat all these uh, disorders. So for this last bit of the podcast, looking at neuroscience as a whole, how much progress do you think we have made in terms of understanding the brain? I think it's tremendous. I mean, um, you know, we agonize over, you know, a lot of issues um, in the literature about reproducibility and uh, other things. But overall, if I've just, my career, I can see, you know, I started graduate school back in 1990. And, um, you know, I came from an you know, electrical engineering background and the type of things we learned or we were thinking about the early 90s about how neurotransmission works uh, turned out to be, you know, not that accurate. I mean, things have emerged uh, significantly about, for instance, this, the snare machinery and then how neurotransmission works, calcium sensors. I mean, this is a major change in understanding that happened, um, you know, in the 1990s and early 2000s um, that changed the way we think about it. I mean, I think progress happens. We learn tremendously and uh, there's clearly a fast pace to these discoveries. Uh, I think validation, reproducibility, et cetera, are all important, but that's the intrinsic to the scientific process. Um, we will make errors, we'll make mistakes, but as long as we can learn from them, I think there will be progress and there has been tremendous progress. I'm quite optimistic. When I look back and look forward, I'm incredibly optimistic. That's great. So what does it take to become a good scientist? And what is your biggest advice for young scientists? I think, um, I think in essence, it's curiosity uh, is essential, that you would like to learn things and you would like to figure things out, how things work. It's, you know, it's being a scientist is being, you know, is reverse engineering, right? Something is built, especially natural sciences, you want to understand how it works. So curiosity is essential. And uh, I think a drive to make discoveries and um, to try to, you know, see things, visualize things that, you know, people have not done before. I mean, this is novelty, creativity, originality are essential in the scientific um, um, endeavor. And I think if you like these things and if you would like to make, you know, have impact and discover new ways of thinking or new ways of treating disease or new ways of how things work. I think that's the essence. Now, the issue is a lot of us start the, this process of being a scientist with these uh, rather, you know, I, one may say naive or maybe childish, these, uh, you know, this with enthusiasm and uh, 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 a kind of a sense of wonder. And then with time, it's it's easy to get somewhat um, disappointed or let's say you know frustrated, and that's uh, I think um, I think that will happen. 
and uh, you know there are a lot of things that have to be right to to be successful uh you need to find funding for your work you need to um you know move forward in one way or another but i think it's important not to get discouraged and keeping that sense of wonder in your heart because that's the essence of everything because if you are original if you care you are creative uh, you will be successful you just need to uh persevere uh and i think that's the essence i think a lot of you know young people can get uh, dissuaded early on because of uh, unpredictability of many things but at the end if you can persevere i think it's uh, that's the essence and keep that sense of wonder okay and that's important because once you lose that then science can easily become like any other vocation so yeah that's great okay it was great talking to you today thanks for coming well, thank you for uh, spending this time and actually really formulating these really nice uh, questions.